truths that we need to be reminded of. We're going to begin reading at verse 16. Hear the word of God. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is a light unto our path. And Father, we thank you for the doctrine of yourself that you have revealed to us, because apart from that revelation, we could never have guessed at how awesome and glorious you are in your relationships, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we study your scriptures this morning, that our hearts would be tuned to you, that our hearts would be gripped with a love for you, and Father, that our minds would appreciate uh, the, uh, the awesomeness of this doctrine. I pray that you would meet with us, that you would quicken the word to our hearts, that you would enable me to faithfully and clearly articulate it, and Father, that uh, we would be the stronger as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, uh, I gave an overview of the uh, Trinity. We looked first of all at why this is such a critically important doctrine to study. And then we looked at the definition, and while there was a, a lot more to the definition than what we looked at last week, we saw that at least the three points that we were studying were understood by Old Testament saints. We looked at ancient Jews that understood this. We saw the early church before the Council of Nicaea understood at least these three basics. There were other things that they refined as heretics came in, began to question. They said, no, that can't be right. And they began refining. But at least these three points were present. First of all, that there was only one true God. And this is absolutely essential to the doctrine of the Trinity. We are not tritheists. We are monotheists. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 32.39. There is no God besides me. John 17.3 speaks of the only true God. We gave a ton of other scriptures and looked at why it's so important for God to be only one God. And then the second part of the definition is that this one God is three persons or three self-consciousnesses, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we saw a whole bunch of scriptures that indicated why there was this plurality within the Godhead. I'll just give you one. It's Matthew chapter 3. At the baptism of Jesus, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we saw that, that there's a, a heretical view called modalism that says there's only one person, but this one person is manifested as Father in the Old Testament, as Son during the time that Jesus was on earth, and then from Acts 2 and on as the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously that can't be true here because the Son is being ministered to by the Spirit. The Son is being talked to by the Father. All three are quite distinct, and yet we saw that there are 
uh, there, even though there are three persons, there is only uh, one God. Matthew 28 commands us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The, the phrases and of thee before each name show that the name is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like some people interpret. No, there is a name and it's Yahweh that belongs to the Father. It is of the Father. There is a name that belongs to the Son. It is of the Son. And there is a name that belongs to the Spirit. And so there's only one name and there's only one Lord and there's only one God and yet there's three persons in that Godhead. Zechariah 14.9, the Lord is one and his name one. Now it really is hard for our minds to hold those two sides in tension, that there is only one God and yet there are three persons, but it's so critical that we do. Thirdly, we saw that these three persons are not each a third of God. See, the Father is not a third of God and the Spirit being a third. No, they are each fully God. Okay, they are fully God. They're equal in power, in attributes, and in glory. For example, even though it says that the Father uh, begot the Son, okay, there is a, a begetting in history, but there is an eternal begetting. Even though the Father begot the Son, the Son is not younger than the Father. Why? Because He is an eternal Father, and there is an eternal Son. There never was a time when the Son did not exist, and there never was a time that the Father did not exist. And so they're both eternal. And so today, when we start examining what distinguishes the Father from the Son and from the Holy Spirit, it is ever so important that we not think that what distinguishes them is maybe some attribute or something related to the divine nature. Uh, one Reformed uh, theology book, it's um, uh, Bruce Ware's book, that uh, I got a number of great ideas from his book as well as some other systematic theologies, but he said this, what distinguishes the Father from Son and Spirit is not the divine nature of the Father. This is also possessed equally and fully by the Son and Spirit. Therefore, what distinguishes the Father is His particular role as Father in relation to Son and Spirit and the relationships that He has with each of them. And that's obviously exactly right. Obviously, what is common to the three persons cannot be what distinguishes their three persons, right? I mean, logic dic dictates that. What's common to the three persons can't be what distinguishes Father from Son and from Holy Spirit. Rather, what distinguishes the three are their roles, their relationships. Uh, the Spirit is just as omnipresent as the Father is. The Son is just as omnipresent as the Father is. They are just as omniscient. The moment you say there is one attribute that applies to one of the persons of the Trinity more than it applies to any other person of the Trinity, you have stepped into the realm of the heretical subordinationism. Okay? Now, the Scripture does talk about a subordinationism of role and function, but there is no subordinationism of, uh, of deity, of essence, of nature, of substance, whatever you want to call it, there is no subordination of deity. They are all three equally and fully divine. Uh, kind of a hard concept to grasp hold of, but very important that we do so. And so today my job is to set before you as clearly as I can the orthodox teaching that the church has always held to of what distinguishes Father from Son and from Holy Spirit, what is unique 
to the Father in terms of roles and relationships. I'm not going to give you anything novel, nothing new, but I will try very hard to make this practical and applicable. I'm going to be answering the question, so what? You know, okay, now that we understand the doctrine, what are the differences that this should make in our lives? The first difference of role and relationship that the Christian church has always held to, at least up until feminism has said what God can and cannot be like, but the church has always held to this, is that the Father is supreme among the persons of the Trinity. The Father is supreme. He takes the initiative. In John 8, verses 28 through 29, Jesus says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Now, that's very comprehensive. He says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak. And so he is very clearly supreme. In Psalm 2, where it speaks of the Son being supreme over all creation, that the Father has uh, uh, given to him the throne that he sits upon. He says, I have uh, placed him upon my holy throne. He's given him all of the nations. And he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for my inheritance. It's still clear even there that Jesus being overall, he has been given those things by the Father. It's the Father's role to be asked by the Son, and it's the Father's role to be the supreme authority who gives. In Matthew 11, verse 27, Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And so even though we're going to be seeing, we saw last week, that there is a deferring of one person to another, and that all of the persons of the Trinity are involved in all works, they're always involved, yet there is an order. It's not the Son that gives these things to the father but the father that gives these things to the son the father is supreme and the son is in the position of being the receiver now modern feminists will say aha got you kaiser there is one scripture that does speak of uh, the son giving something to the father and it's first corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28 and uh, they say there even though the Father has given all things to the Son, and that shows the Son's submission to Him, the Son gives back all things to the Father, which shows that the Father submits to the Son. There is a mutual submission here. There is an egalitarianism. And what I want to say is, no, absolutely not. Um, And the very context dictates that this cannot be true It it defies the meaning of submission, number one, but number two, verse 27 says, For he, that's the Father, has put all things under his feet, and the his there is the Son, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. He says all things except for the Father were put under the Son's feet, And we're going to be seeing in a later sermon that the Spirit himself has been put under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 27 makes it very clear the Father does not submit to the Son. The Father is in the position of authority. Now, what about verse 28? It's true that all that the Father has given to the Son, the Son at the end of history, is going to be giving back to the Father. But I want you to notice the way in which it's worded on the overhead there. Now, when all things are made subject to him, that's to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 
So it's saying in verse 27, everything except for the Father is subject to the Son. And in verse 28, it says the Son himself is subject to the Father. Can you see that? I don't know how Paul could be any more clear that the feminist interpretation of this is not right. Now, one commentator, and this was Bruce Ware that I got uh, some of the ideas from, uh, but he said this. He gives a paraphrase of this. He says, here's what the gist of this passage is saying. At the completion of history, when all things finally and fully are subjected to Jesus Christ the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to his own Father, who is the very one who put all things in subjection under his Son, so that God the Father, who is not subjected to anyone, not even to his own Son, may be shown to be supreme and over all that is. And so the Father takes the initiative in giving all things to the Son, which means he has the authority to give it. And at the end of history, the Father is recognized as over all things, including the Son. In fact, the Son voluntarily all along has placed himself in subjection to the Father. Now, some might think, well, that's a special situation for the Son because the Son was incarnated, right? And uh, so maybe with the Spirit it doesn't work that way, and with the economic trinity it doesn't work that way. Now, let me explain the difference. Theologians have made a difference between the trinity economically considered, which means the trinity as they relate to the creation, and the trinity ontologically speaking, which means as he is in himself, as he exists apart from the creation. So there are those kinds of distinctions, but a number of Reformed theologians have pointed out that the terms, there are a lot of the passage we're going to be looking at is the trinity, economically speaking, related to creation, and there's a distinction there. But he points out, now, well, many, many Reformed theologians have pointed out that the terms son and father relate to both the economic trinity as well as the ontological trinity. He is an eternal father, and he is an eternal son. And there never is a time when he was not father and son, and the very terms themselves indicate that the father is the first person in the trinity. There is a supremacy of father over the other two persons of the trinity. This has been the doctrine of the church right from the beginning of, um, of time. So it's clear, the Father is supreme over the Son. He is also supreme over the Spirit. John 16, verse 13 says of the Spirit, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And so the Father sends the Spirit, and the Spirit is said to be the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Christ. And so there's an ordering in the Trinity. Now, let's move on to the next point. This in no way annuls the idea that there is an equality amongst the persons of the Trinity. They're equal in divine nature, divine power, divine glory, all of the divine attributes. Remember last week, we looked at a number of scriptures showing the equality. John 5:18. It says Jesus was making himself equal with God. Philippians 2.6 speaks of Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The reason it isn't robbery is because he owned the equality. Okay, you can't steal something that already belongs to yourself. Now, the reason I mention this is it's very easy for us to assume that if we are in a position of, author- uh, of being under the authority of a parent or a husband, or an employer 
or under the authority of some civil magistrate, that that somehow demeans us and makes us inferior. No way. It does not make you inferior at all. Um, it has never been the idea that there is inferiority because there are inferior roles or relationships that the nature is inferior. Um, total equality of nature and inequality of role or function have always been compatible. Let me just go back to the, the feminists. Even the most radical feminist who insists on total equality, I think they have to recognize in their better moments that even though that lady is 100% equal in nature to the President of the United States, and I believe every one of you women is 100% equal to the United States President, to me, to any other man, she would have to recognize that she is not equal to him in role. There's a lot of things she can't do because she's not President of the United States. When a cop pulls her over by the side of the road, uh, she can insist that she is equal to him in nature, and that's 100% true, but she's still not equal to him in role or function, right? And she's still going to get that ticket, and she's still going to have to pay that fine. And so I think we need to keep clearly in our mind, just because there are lesser roles or functions does not in any way do away with the idea that there is a full equality of nature. The idea of equality of roles is an illogical idea that has never existed in history, in reality. It exists only in people's minds or in some theoretical books. It doesn't even exist in the Trinity. There is a submission of Son to Father. There is a submission of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? They glory in those differences. They highlight those differences. They delight in those differences that exist among them. And so the bottom line is that the buck stops with the Father. He was the de decision maker. And there are numerous scriptures that demonstrate this. For example, in Ephesians 1, while the Father makes it clear that the Son is the focal point of all of history, and all of history revolves around Jesus Christ and submits to Jesus Christ, it's still the Father who is the decision maker. He is the one who is the planner. He chose us in Christ, verse 4. He made us accepted in the Beloved, verse 6. He made us his grace and wisdom to abound toward us. Verse 8, it was his plan. Verse 9, he will guarantee that all things will be knit together in Christ. Verse 10, verse 11 says, In him, that is in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him, this is the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is nothing done in this universe that was not a part of the Father's plan. He's the architect. He's the designer. Now, did he make sure that the Son and the Holy Spirit had a significant role to play? Absolutely. Yes, he did. But the whole chapter shows, yes, the significance of the Son. It shows the role of the Holy Spirit in applying redemption in our lives and doing many other things. And yet it's clear he is the one who is supreme and his title is Father. Now, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to be drawing out some of the applications of this doctrine but I want to just talk quickly about a couple of other things that the father does the father generously provides for the son and for the Holy Spirit he ministers in their lives he provides he gives them things now that statement I just made ought to sound rather odd in your ears because the father the son and the Holy Spirit don't need anything do they they don't need anything and yet the father gives to them he gives things to them 
Now, what is it he gives? He obviously can't give them attributes or they wouldn't be equal in power and glory and the divine essence, right? He can't give those things. So what kinds of things does he give? Uh, the doctrine of aseity, that's A-S-E-I-T-Y. The doctrine of aseity means that God needs nothing. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is the I am. That doctrine of aseity applies equally to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and yet God is still giving. God the Father is giving to the Son and the Spirit. What are the things he gives? Well, I give um, a number of different scriptures. Uh, he gives things like people, authority, love. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, if you've studied covenant theology very much, you know that uh, before there even was a world, before the foundation of the world, there was a council of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit making a planning of creating this world and of redeeming a people to himself. And each one div divvied up their roles of what they were going to be doing. And for the Son's role of his obedience, the Father was going to give to Jesus a people. That means every one of you is a special gift that the Father gave to his Son, and his Son delights in you. Now, that doesn't blow your mind. I don't know what will. We are a special gift from God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did Jesus need us? No, but he delighted in receiving that gift from us. Uh, John 12, 49, the Father gives authority to the Son. John 6, 27, the Father gives his approval to the Son. John 1, 32 through 33, shows that the Father gives his Spirit to the Son. Actually, there's a ton of scriptures talking about even in eternity the father giving of his spirit to the son john 3 34 indicates that the spirit was given without measure the father gives praise to the son he says this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased you know what there are children who desperately hunger for the praise of their fathers they would much rather have a word of praise from their dads than to have some kind of a material gift the father gives praise to the son even though the son doesn't need this praise but he does many of these things i believe to model to us what it means to have fatherhood wives too wish that their husbands would back them up and uh, would support them and would encourage them that same verse shows that the father did exactly that with the son the same voice comes out of heaven and says hear him listen to him he's backing up the son and we who are in authority we need to back up the ones who we've delegated authority to no matter whether it's business family or some other thing we need to back them up and there are other things that the father gives he gives words to the son that the son gives to the spirit and then the spirit gives to the apostles and they wrote down the scriptures for us this is the gift of the father the words he has given it's his gift he loves us he delights in giving us his word but he gave it first to the son he says for i have given to them the words which you have given me that's jesus speaking to the father i've given them the words which you have given to me now just that brief listing and that's not a comprehensive list of all of the things that the father gives to son and to holy spirit just that brief listing ought to trigger in your mind the thought you know what giving is not dependent on needing right the father gives to the son he gives to the spirit even though they don't need anything and that ought to be something that we key in on and say you know the only times that i give are when there are needs no 
We give out of the abundance of our heart. We give out of the superfluity of our heart. We give generously even when there is not need uh, within the family or need outside of the family. Uh, we give as an expression of our love and of our role relationships. Praise is given by the Father, not because the Son needs praise. And I think we need to take heart from that. And we're going to have a lot more to say about that. But we need to be a people that are filled with praise. This is something I need to grow in. But we need to be a praising people. The Father's gift-giving heart can be seen in his relationship as well to his earthly sons. Now, to me, this is so encouraging of how generous God is to his children. Listen to some of these scriptures. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God the Father, as Father, delights in giving to us gifts. Romans 8, 31 through 32 says that the Father gave us his Son as a gift, and then he goes on to say, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying the giving of his Son shows he's for us. It gives us a sense of security. And then he goes on to say, he who did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things and so he is a very generous generous provider think of the things that we pray for in the lord's prayer and you will realize that god the father is not just the supreme one that we need to hallow that we need to reverence but he is also the one who is our helper he is our provider he is our protector he is our savior he is our guide and he stands as a model of what we as fathers need to be doing with our children uh, Ephesians 3 14 through 15 at least in some versions and I think I put a few translations up there on the overhead uh, but it indicates that God the Father is the one from whom all fatherhood is derived the concept of fatherhood is modeled after God's fatherhood and if that's the case it's no wonder then that God says when we as fathers do not give to our families when we do not provide for our families we have denied the faith that's first uh, timothy 5 18 probably on the next page first timothy 5 8 it is he says that a father who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever strong words but he's saying that's how much i want fathers on earth to be imitating my fatherhood in heaven he says, if you don't do it, if you're not providing for your families, you've denied the faith, you're worse than an unbeliever. You can put up the next overhead, uh, Joel. Another thing that we see with the Father is his enormous humility. Now, a person who didn't know God might expect that if uh, the Father provides all things, he's an authority over all things, he's the supreme one, the one that gets all the honor, if... Uh, uh, the son can't do anything without the father's uh, permission that this would really be a, a head trip for the father and he would be filled with pride but it totally misses the point of what authority is all about even though he is the highest authority and even though he is in the place of highest honor he still delights in honoring the son and the spirit he still delights in honoring us he has the Son and the Spirit doing work that he could have done. He has us doing work that he could have done. John 6 indicates one of the Father's roles is to draw us by grace. John 6, 44. 
Oh, maybe it was on the previous one, Joel. Uh, John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, that indicates two jobs that the Father does. He gives the Son, and he draws people to the Son by his grace. There's one job listed for Jesus, and that is to raise people in the last day. Now, there's a ton of other divvying up of jobs between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we won't even have time to probably get into in this series. Uh, <clears throat> but... Um, The scripture lays out these kinds of distinctions because he is modeling to us delegation, delegation of jobs. We've already read in Ephesians chapter 1, but that chapter indicates the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and how did he do it? He did it in Christ. In fact, he says you can't get any benefit if you don't come through Christ. Verses 4 through 11. It's all obtained through the Son. We're chosen in Christ. We're adopted in Christ. We're forgiven in Christ. We're secured in Him. The Holy Spirit seals us forever. This means that though the buck stops with the Father, the Father still delegates to the Son. He delegates to the Spirit. He effectively shares and divides all the work with others. And what He does with the Father and Son, He also does with us. Now, in Acts 17, and I mentioned this passage earlier in the service, Acts 17, 25, He makes sure to mention... But the Father doesn't need us. That's not why he's delegated stuff to us. He says, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So he's not involving us because he needs us. He could do all the work by himself, but it's of the very nature of fatherhood to be giving, delegating, involving others in work, involving others in glory that the Father has. He calls us to serve. In Psalm 100, verse 2, and in hundreds of other passages, um, he teaches us what service is all about. Now, keep in mind that when we're involved in dominion work, uh, you're working in your business, when we're involved in mowing the lawn and in witnessing to people and all of the things that we do, ultimately, it is the Father's work that we are doing. Right? He works through us. He gives us a portion in His glory. He gives us a portion of the rewards that are going to be given out in heaven. It's the Father's work, but what he's doing is he's wanting us to share in his glory, to share in the joy of service, and to share in the rewards of service. I mean, to me, it's just awesome when I think of the things that God has delegated to us. Just think about the creation. Scripture begins with God creating Adam and Eve. Now, God could have gone ahead and just kept on creating other humans just like he created Adam and Eve, but instead what he did is he delegated to us the responsibility of creating new people in the image of God. And it's such a cool thing. When God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, as we are obeying that commandment, what we are doing is we, as image bearers of God, are bringing babies into the world who are God's image. We're sharing. We are delegated this responsibility by God. And you know what? It says that God took pleasure in making the creation. Uh, he took joy when Adam and Eve were created, and I think this is one of the reasons why God brings one of the greatest pleasures that humans can experience as being a part of this creation of new people in God's image. Now, obviously, it's a different kind of pleasure than what God had, but it's a faint, faint <laughs> approximation. It's a faint uh, entering into the joy and the pleasure that God had in creating. God says, 
you guys, I'm going to let you share in some of the glory that I have. And yet, despite the fact this is the greatest pleasure we can enter into, so many people use this pleasure selfishly just to serve themselves rather than creating new people in God's image. Now, that's not the only purpose for um, conjugal uh, relations in marriage and love in marriage. Uh, there is just pleasure, there's uh, there companionship, there's many other purposes. So don't get me wrong and say that this is the only thing that we can do. But the scripture indicates that this is a glorious thing that God has delegated to us. And as fathers, just as God freely chose to give us life, as fathers, we can choose to give life to new people. And so you can see that the Trinity is a paradigm of what it means for a person who is in authority to love and care for and protect and sacrificially give to those who are under him to meet their needs. It's also a model of how we ought to relate to authority figures who are over us. And every one of us is under authority. And if we're not, we're in an unbiblical system. Every one of us is under authority. So let me try to wrap up some loose ends. And I'm really indebted to uh, uh, Bruce Ware for some of these ideas. And I benefited some other uh, systematic theologies. But let me just close with some applications. First of all, learn from God what fatherhood is all about. God the Father, first of all, insists upon respect and honor for his fatherhood. He insists upon that. Malachi 1.6 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. If we allow our children to show disrespect and dishonor to us, what we are doing is we are destroying what God in the very Trinity has established as a pattern of life, and it's going to come back to bite our children. If we are not demanding obedience and respect for our authority, it's going to eventually go on to mean that they're going to throw off all authority and disrespect all authority. The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Some translate it, May your name be revered. May your name be honored. May your name be respected. And we are failing our children if we do not teach to them respect and honor and reverence for the father of the family because if they lack that, they're going to lack reverence and respect for God the Father. If the son who is equal to the father in nature can say, I honor my father, we need to model that as well. Ephesians 6, 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. I love the way God constantly shows it's not a one-way street. Uh, we're to give honor to God, but he says, hey, this is the first commandment with promise. We honor God, God honors us, and he blesses us with all kinds of blessings in our lives. And so this next uh, point uh, shows another dimension of fatherhood, the kind of care that the Heavenly Father shows to us. Our Heavenly Father is lavish in his generosity. Romans 8:32. he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, some things he gives to us directly. Some things he gives through the Spirit. For example, Romans 5, verse 5 says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Sometimes he gives us things through human agents. And he takes delight in sharing the privilege that you have of prayer or sharing the privilege with you of doing some other uh, aspect. And we too, as fathers, we need to make sure 
that we delight in not taking the credit, but in allowing other people to be involved in ministry. Um, there are gifts that our wives give to children that come from our hard-earned money as fathers, and yet we delight in it. The, the wife was the one who thought up the idea, and she went out and got the present, and she brought it together, and the two of us can delight in the giving of that gift. You've got children who give gifts to you, and the gifts probably came from things that you enabled them to give, and yet you delight in it, right? And this is exactly the way it is with Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Father gives to us and provides for us only when we work and when we pray and when we plan. And especially as our children have gotten older, we have transitioned them, I think, into this kind of a provision. When I've allowed my sons to work outside of the home, that has been a gift. Okay, that's been a provision that I have allowed them to have. Uh, it was a provision of my fatherhood that could be revoked at any time and they knew would be revoked at any time if I felt it was not in their best interest to be working outside the home. But I have not revoked it because I saw this as an opportunity for further maturing in their lives, for the joy of, um, uh, of uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the dominion that they wouldn't be able to have at home, for the uh, development of how to handle risk. Uh, all of the things that they're learning there, I think, were part of the maturing process that they needed to go through. So don't think of God's lavish generosity as being a situation where we're strapped into a, a chair, you know, with our mouths propped open and God's dropping grapes or bonbons, as the case with uh, yeah, <laughs> the joke, I think, in the, the Haynes household. That's the idea some people have. You know, we're just passive. It's all of grace and we don't do anything. No, God provides for us many times through our own work and efforts and through the work and efforts of other people. He's a delegator. And... Um, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do my children and does my wife have the sense that I love them, that I'm providing for them, that I'm interested in their maturity, that I'm trying to structure things in a way that is for their good? That's what they should sense. Now, let me address the whole issue of adults who have been abused by their fathers because sometimes... Uh, people in their young years have been so abused by their fathers that the very word father elicits a strong negative emotion within them. The, the word father hurts them because all they can remember in connection with fatherhood is that they've been beat up and abused as a child. It's a terrible thing that they've had to go through. And unfortunately, what some therapists have done, if they, as they have said, you know, because of your past, we should just do away with the word father when it comes to God because it's going to bring too much trauma. And so they opt for gender-neutral kind of language. That is robbing this person of what the true remedy is. The true remedy is for this person to meditate deeply upon God's fatherhood and to so revel in who God is that they are ministered to, that their minds are transformed. But there's a renewing of their minds as they get into the scriptures and as they worship the Lord God. I think that's what we need to do. And as they find healing within their lives, then they're in a, a better position not to repeat the same problem with their children. They gain the father heart from God. Psalm 103 uh, indicates that uh, it's not just being harsh with our children. There are times we have to be harsh. We have to be severe. 
But there are times we have to be tender and compassionate. And some people think those are opposites. No, they can reside in the same person. Psalm 103.13 says in one version, As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord tenderly sympathizes with those who revere him. Now, I'm not going to go into uh, discipline. Um, we spent a whole sermon on discipline, but that's a wonderful aspect of fatherhood as well. But what he's talking about here, yes, honor is still called for, but the father who is in a sto- authority is still called to be tender and compassionate and ability to sympathize. In fact, one of the most remarkable phrases related to the son is in John chapter 1, verse 18, and I goofed up on the overhead. Just ignore the, uh, the reference to, well, maybe I did fix it did i it's not 517 uh the the uh, scripture is john 1 18 but jesus answered them the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him uh, it's just a remarkable verse does jesus need to be wrapped in the arms of the father that's what it means to be in the father's bosom is is like cuddling as he's wrapped into the arms so that he can know the father's heart of love did jesus need that no he has a seity he doesn't need that and yet the father's heart goes out to him and the son's heart goes out to the father and i think we make a mistake if we think the only time we need to hug our children is when they have skinned their knees or in some other way they've gone through a trauma no i think we need to hug our children and bring them into our bosom and help them to see our father heart continually and i have not been the best at this but it's something i'm growing in. i want to grow in more but the hugs the relationship is a patterning after god the father i mean it's just a remarkable verse when you when you think about it the father spends such familiar time with his son that this verse says jesus knows the father's heart he can communicate that father's heart to other people that's what it's saying some people think uh, tenderness and compassion is just a female attribute it's not it's a fatherhood attribute as well god is called the father of mercies and the god of all comfort second corinthians 1 3 now if a wicked father has robbed you of his father's heart because of the way in which maybe you've uh, received abuse at his hand then again what you need to do is you need to look to the ultimate father in heaven find healing and adjustment in your mind and your emotions and your spirit as you worship on his lap as it were and begin adjusting by practicing sometimes it's so unnatural if you've never been hugged it's unnatural it feels uncomfortable to go and hug some other person just practice at it and eventually it will become natural and it will do your heart good and it will do your children's heart good as well but sometimes we have to renew our minds and think what is god like as a father and i need to adjust my life to that Another tendency is for wives to rob men of their fatherhood characteristics by usurping the reins of authority or by doing the things that are really essential to the father's position. Teaching is one of the things that a father is supposed to do to his wife and to his children. And there are wives who say, my my husband can't teach anything. And... uh, I need to find out from you and so they'll ask me questions and I'll, I'll tell them well why don't you ask your husband oh my husband doesn't know the answer and I say I know that but why don't you ask your husband to find out the answer he can come to me he can come to one of the other men in the congregation and as he finds the answer he'll come back and talk to you and he may not even be able to express the answer as well as you already know that answer but as you affirm him and you build him up and you say honey I want to hear from you 
you know what you're going to do? You're going to minister to him far more than just about anything else you could do would minister to him because he needs to be pushed and elevated and respected and, and put into that position where he can be the minister that he wants to be, but he feels so terrible because he knows you're smarter than he is and, and you can't, he can't minister as well as you could minister. But what you need to do is say, I value your fatherhood. I want you to be my leader. I want you to be my teacher. Can you see what I'm saying there? Sometimes we can rob them by helping them. We, we shouldn't help where it's their unique function. What we should do is say, I mean, we can help in the sense of encouraging them and saying, I want you to minister. And, and by the way, we men are only going to faintly, faintly approximate what the Father is like. And so please don't overwhelm us, right? And don't discourage us in saying, man, you're sure not like God. <laughs> well, we know we're not like God, right? We're struggling, we're trying to grow. And so what you can do is you can respect us, you can encourage us, you can remind us. Sometimes we need reminding, especially I do. You know, I, in the past I've just said, yeah, I keep forgetting to have devotions. And so one of the things for years we've done is uh, my wife has had one of the kids just bring the Bible to me. And it's just kind of a silent reminder, you know. It's not like, how come you didn't do the devotions again? That's a put down, right? But it's like, oh, we're really looking forward to the devotions you're bringing. And so there's various ways in which you can encourage us to be the men that we need to be. Many times we sense our failures. We're discouraged over our failures, but we still need to have that ideal of the Father that's set before our eyes. Now, let's look at some of the other things of, um, of uh, uh, applications from God's fatherhood. We should not only marvel at God's delegation of things to Son and Spirit and His delegation of things through them to us, but we need to learn how to be better at delegating ourselves. Now, frequently, men's egos get in the way. I, I think we men, our egos get in the way of proper delegation. We know how the job needs to be done, right? And uh, so we're kind of reluctant to delegate this task to another person, and we're surely reluctant to give the glory to this person, especially we've been helping them out. We know it's not been working, you know. We're reluctant to give the glory, and frequently what happens with we men, with us men, excuse me, is that we are constantly getting our fingers back in the job that we're delegated and telling them to do it this way and do that way. The son's work. He glorifies them. He puts them into the spotlight. He speaks about them. And if we delegated like the Father delegated, I think everybody would want to work for us. Everybody would want to work for us because of the way he did it. I think the Apostle Paul, who was constant praise for those he, he assigned those tasks to, read through the epistles sometime and notice the frequent praises that he gives in all of those epistles. It's almost like he goes out of his way to find things that he can praise people for. Now, he does make corrections, and sometimes those corrections are rather severe corrections. Nothing wrong with that. But along with those corrections, he also praises them for the things that they are doing right. And this is the way I see the Father doing it. The Father corrects us, yes, but he also brings praise. He brings encouragement. Um, it's clear that the Son follows the Father's directions, the Spirit follows the Son's directions. We read some of the scriptures last week. But Paul's delegation, like the Father's delegation, I think is a balance between direction and empowerment, guidelines and freedom. 
When God delegates, he does not abdicate. The buck stops with him. When he delegates, he doesn't stop all work like some human delegators lazily do, and they just say, yeah, you do the work. In fact, I, there was a show when I was a kid uh, called Archie Bunker, I think is what it was called, and this guy just sat on the couch uh, and bossing his wife around, telling her to do all kinds of things. And even as a kid, I was like, this is really odd. Why are people watching this kind of a show? But he says, that's not the kind of delegation that we should have where we're couch potatoes. What we are doing, if we are couch potatoes bossing everybody else around, is we are violating the Father's model of delegation. Let's just look at a couple of verses and let's work our way through them. John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. If you hand out jobs left and right and you're not doing it, okay, you've, you've, you've rejected God's model of delegation. John 5, 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Now, this teaches us how we can teach our children. Now, there are other scriptures that say we need to verbally give instructions and teach, and there's devotions and all of that. But what this is saying is imitation. You model to your children, and your children will do what you have done. So if you want their room to be cleaned, what you do the first time, you go in there and you help them to clean it. You show them what to do. Maybe you've mopped a part of the floor and then you say, okay, now you try. And they're mopping and you make some corrections, say, okay, that's good, but just try to do the, the mop sweeping this way. And by the time you're done, that child knows how to do the room. You might have to make a few corrections in the future, but they have learned by watching. They have learned by watching. Modeling as a father reflects the fatherhood of God. So, how do your children learn self-discipline? It's by watching your self-discipline. How do they learn fasting? It's by watching you fast. You know, and you're not complaining like they're complaining about the hunger and the weakness and things like that. Instead, you're using those as reminders to reflect yourself to God again. Uh, how do your children uh, learn how to honor their wives in the future? It's by seeing how you honor your wife and how you praise your wife. How do they learn how to be tender? It's by seeing you being tender. Uh, do you have bad habits? Well, your sons and daughters are probably going to develop those same bad habits. The key phrase is that verse, what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. That could be a scary thing for a father. And yet, we need to lay hold of it and say, Lord, <laughs> I want to be like you are. I want to be like you are. That's what fatherhood is all about. John 5, 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now that verse indicates we need to be showing to our children things that they're going to need to prepare them for the future, whether it's about fatherhood or other things. We need to tell them about our failures so that they can avoid them. We need to tell them about our successes so that they can imitate those. Uh, we need to show them. And I think this is the way that the Father, that verse indicates, the Father showed Jesus, this is economic trinity, as he was growing up, he didn't unravel everything at once. Luke is very clear about that. Jesus grew in knowledge. He grew in understanding. And so over the course of his lifetime, the Father is unfolding more and more of his plan for this son. And so if your idea of teaching your son is when they become teenagers, you figure, okay, Son, I want you to sit down with me. We're going to spend an hour, and I'm going to teach you about life. It isn't that easy. <laughs> it's a lifetime of a child's life that you're going to have to be investing in. 
And I've already mentioned another facet of delegation. We need to notice what those who are under us are doing. We need to praise them. Now, I'm not always good at this, but Paul was a master at it. And if you want to learn, study the Father, study Paul, you'll have all of the information that you need to make the people who are underneath you feel important and needed and appreciated. And that's true even if they goof up. And who doesn't goof up? 1 Corinthians, um, you know, talks about a really, really messed up church. Man, they were messed up. And Paul brings his corrections. But Paul in that passage is very, very careful to notice the good things that they do and to praise them for that. Now, here's an application to those of you who are not fathers. Think of the ways in which the Son and the Spirit, and we'll look at this maybe a little bit more in a later sermon, but think of the ways in which they delight in submitting to the Father, and I challenge you to delight in submitting to your authority figures. Now, that runs so contrary to the flesh, but we need to learn to glory in submitting to authority. Now, even though the Father shows great humility in the way in which he defers to the other members of the Trinity, there is a biblical insistence that the Father have his rightful place among the persons of the Trinity, as uh, Bruce Ware points out so well. But, as I mentioned earlier, the Father must back up his wife before the children as well. I know of one family, and it's not in this church. Don't worry about that. Um, but it's one family in which the children wouldn't dare to sass their dad, but they sass their mom, and they get away with it all the time. And it grieves me because it completely destroys God's pattern of fatherhood. Now, they shouldn't sass either of the parents, but it grieves me when this happened. John 5.23 shows how much of a betrayal it is. It says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If authority has been given to the Son and you don't honor the Son, you have rejected the Father who has placed the Son in place. And the same is true of the Spirit. You see Jesus insisting on the same honor to the Spirit that is to be given to him. In fact, interestingly, it's more honor to the Spirit. Uh, th- this is an interesting verse. He demands more of the uh, uh, honor of the Spirit than he does of himself. Matthew 12, verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. That is saying Jesus was willing to put up with more rebellion against his own authority than he was against the Spirit's authority. To me, that that is so powerful. Back up those who are underneath you or it's undermining your own authority. Mothers who don't have the dad's support and encouragement, they are so discouraged, they don't know what to do because the dads aren't backing them up. They feel in a helpless place. If you apply that principle to the authority relationship of marriage, you will realize that when a son fails to honor the mom, he is truly, indeed, failing to honor the father, even though he may be very honoring to the father when he's dishonoring to the son. No, God says he is totally dishonoring uh, the father as well. Now, that assumes, of course, that the mother is, is uh, not contradicting the father, right? Uh, Jesus honored the father by doing his will, and therefore he had the full authority to be obeyed and honored. The same is true of the spirit. And where a wife is seeking to fulfill her role as mother, sassing her should be seen as the same thing as sassing the dad. 
Can you see that? Now, all of this assumes a unity in marriage where the wife truly reflects the husband's desires and the husband truly desires to encourage and support the wife. In fact, the wife should be so in tune with the father's desires, the, her husband's desires, that getting an answer from mom is exactly the same thing as getting an answer from dad because she knows exactly the way dad thinks. And when an appeal comes, you know, the children say, Dad, can I appeal to you on this? And over and over again, the appeal is denied because the mother knows exactly what the father's desires are. Boy, that's going to cut that out very quickly. Jesus said, if you had known me, you had, would have known my father also. John 8, verse 19. Why? Because he represented the father. That's why. And that's why the centurion said, to have authority, you need to be under authority. If you women want to be taken seriously in your authority, make sure that you glorify and respect and honor your husbands. If you fail to honor and respect your husbands, it will eventually always lead to your children lacking respect for you. Now, in the meantime, while they're getting their way, they may respect you, but God guarantees it. If you do not respect and honor and glorify and lift up your husbands, it is guaranteed that your children will come back to bite you in the future. It is guaranteed. It's built right into the Trinity. This is the way God works, and this is the way God has made his world to work. Jesus told his disciples, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. When we are under authority, we must not speak on our own authority. When we are under authority, we must not speak on our own authority. That's the ideal for marriage, that there be such a unity between father and mother, a child can never play one off against the other. You see the same unity of purpose and word between son and spirit, spirit and father. Jesus and Father. You see the same unity. And this brings me to the last application. While we husbands are called to especially love our wives, to nurture them, to provide for them, to care for them, to protect them in every way that we can, you wives, the area that we're weak in is loving and nurturing. The area you're weak in is respecting. You wives are especially to respect your husbands, to build them up, to encourage them, to support them as your helpmate. And if you're not respecting your husband, you are robbing him of that which is his by God's design, and it will hinder your own development. And it's always, by the way, in your best interests as well. God's just made it to work this way. When you respect your husband, you're going to find your husbands coming back and nurturing and loving you. They're going to be investing their lives in you. It's just like a magnet. It will work. Jesus said, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. He did not bristle at the Father's authority. He didn't desire independence. He didn't take it as a bad thing that he was under authority. He delighted in his position of submission. In John 8, 29, Jesus said, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. What an interesting verse. Think about it for a second. Why does the father delight in being around the son? It's because the son delights in pleasing the father. You know what? <laughs> Just apply it in your own marriage. What kinds of wives do husbands love to be around? 
It's the kind of wives that delight in pleasing their husbands. Now, the reverse is also true. You look here. Why does God the Son delight in pleasing his father? It's because his father is always around him, right? And so it goes both ways. As the husbands focus on their responsibilities to be around their wives, to nurture them and to love them and do all the things God has called them to do, and as the wives delight in pleasing their husbands, setting aside their own interests, doing the things that God has called them to do, you're going to have an awesome marriage. It's going to be a beautiful marriage. Now, there's so much, there's so much that could be applied to our lives from the Father's relationship with Son and Spirit. And uh, we just don't have time. But I hope that I've given you enough that you can, and you've had your appetites whetted, and you're going to say, man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to look in a concordance, and I'm going to start memorizing and, 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 and looking at all of the things that the Father does in relationship. Just look up the word Father, and you're going to get a host of verses that will bless your soul and help you to grow in your sanctification. And to me, it's just awesome, awesome lessons. I've grown. I've learned so much in doing this study. And next week, uh, Lord willing, I hope to focus on either the Son or the Spirit. It's probably going to be the Son, uh, first of all. And as we look at these scriptures, my prayer for you is, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father God, I know there's been a ton of material for these people to digest, almost like opening a fire hose, but I pray, O oh God, that you would help them to lay hold of uh, whatever it is that your Spirit is convicting them of and help them, O oh God, to rejoice in the roles and relationships that you have called them to as well as the equality that we have in Christ Jesus, that in Christ there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor bond that... We are equal with the President of the United States, but help us, Father, at the same time to glory in our submission uh, to the authorities that you have placed over us. Help us to reflect uh, your, your Father heart and help us, Father, when we're in positions of author uh, under authority to reflect that of Jesus and that of the Holy Spirit. And Father, may you be glorified and lifted up. May we be encouraged and strengthened. And may our marriages and may our businesses and the things that we are involved in be strengthened as we seek to conform ourselves to the pattern that you have set. To you be all the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.